Welcome to Free Your Inner Guru, the podcast for discerning seekers where we have all the community and none of the cult. I'm your host, Laura Tucker. Free Your Inner Guru is a deep dive into personal growth, spirituality, self-help, psychology, all the things you need to connect with your inner wisdom so you can become the leader you want to see in the world. Before I introduce our guest this episode, first I've got a thank you and then a couple of updates. Thanks to everyone, first of all, who responded to the last episode with Dr. Yanya Lalich, and in particular to Samantha who left a review. And here's what she wrote. As a seeker and someone involved in the wellness and self-help industry, I find this podcast informative and necessary to navigating the complex landscape of personal growth with self-trust and discernment. This type of feedback takes my breath away. It helps me know, first of all, that I'm staying on track with the intention of the podcast. And if somehow the work that I'm doing here is empowering you to be discerning and trust yourself more, um, I mean, that's the whole point. Thank you for that, Samantha. In other news, we had the July 1st Friday leadership community hangout. I've taken to calling it a huddle because that's what we do. We huddle together for an hour on Zoom for conversation based on the podcast, but really it's an opportunity to connect with people who are interested in the topics associated with this podcast and take it from there. Our huddle conversation ended up being about what we're listening to and watching in pop culture because surprise, surprise, no one really seemed to have the bandwidth for more on self-development on a Friday afternoon in July. Sometimes for people like us, it can be easy to thumb our nose at pop culture or think that we're not doing something important when we're partaking in entertainment. And you can miss some really good stuff that inspires, entertains, and informs. So it's important to have a look once in a while, make sure we're not serious all of the time, especially since a lot of us live or work in serious situations and areas. I'll just put this out there. If a guru-free community sounds like something you want to be a part of, take a wander over to the page at freeyourinnerguru.com. So speaking of serious, how's that for a segue? Today's conversation with Shulamit Berlevtov covers a broad range of topics, including the parallels between cult dynamics and abusive intimate relationships, the intersection of conspiracy thinking and the self-help industry, and dealing with what we're calling shit therapists, and more. Shulamit contacted me after listening to the last episode with Dr. Yanya, when self-help turns cult. If you haven't caught that episode, it by no means is it a prerequisite, but I highly recommend it, as does Shulamit and so many people who've reached out. There was a particular part that Shulamit reacted to. And um, as you'll hear, we have struck up a few online conversations over the past 18 months and the topics that she has experience with and is concerned about are a powerful follow-up to my conversation with Yanya. So a little bit about Shulamit before you meet her. Shulamit is a resilience and a mindset consultant who uses her background as a trauma therapist to help women identifying entrepreneurs manage their mindset and pilot their emotions so they can overcome the anxiety and isolation of running a business. And given that we are coming off an extremely isolating period, the challenges of which are ongoing, women have been disproportionately affected by the pandemic. And as much as we've come a long way from when I was a child of the 70s, it has become very apparent that we have a long way to go. One of the things I appreciate about Shulamit is that she's not just spouting memes on social media, you know, the ones that you've seen a thousand times before. She's actively engaging in the topics of the day. So with no further introduction, I give you a conversation with Shulamit Berlevtov. Shulamit, welcome to Free Your Inner Guru. It's wonderful to have you here. How fun to be together in this way. Thanks, Laura. You're a resilience and mindset consultant, and you have a background in therapy, which very much has everything to do with how and why we have connected here on Free Your Inner Guru. When we were first starting to get to know each other, I found your previous experience relevant as well as engaging and interesting. 
So you live in Ottawa, which is the capital of Canada in Ontario, and I'm in Toronto. So that's an, a 40-minute flight or a four-hour drive away. And we are a pandemic connection. We did not know each other before the pandemic and before our connection on Instagram. So before we dive into that and how we came to say, we need to talk about this and let's do it on the podcast, uh, please share some, how you got into therapy as a therapist and as well as your experience and presence in the Ottawa community. Thank you for asking. So I do want to clarify that I'm actually southeast of Ottawa in rural Ontario. I'm halfway between Ottawa and Kingston for Canadians or Ontarians who might want to know exactly where that is. And it's important to me because rural life and rural communities, it's important to to identify that we're vital communities with all kinds of really talented and skilled professionals, that it's not just the big city. That's important to me. And how I became a therapist well, I'll give you the Reader's Digest condensed version. I started school in a social work program when I was 19, 20, my first undergraduate degree. But partway through the program, I diverted into radio and TV, which is a long story of its own, and then became a translator. But I became injured as a translator and needed to do my own occupational rehab. So all along the side there, I became a certified yoga teacher through Kripalu, I became a certified trainer in nonviolent communication and a certified focusing teacher and guide. So I had always worked on the side in the personal growth area. And I'm a trauma survivor. So I had been in and out of therapy all my life. And around 2002, finally ended up with a therapist who understood trauma, understood domestic violence, understood the whole situation. And that was what made the difference in my own recovery. So that when I did have to do my own occupational rehab, I was like, it makes sense that I would go back to my beginnings. Although what kind of therapist I would have been in my 20s, I would need to think, oh my goodness. <sighs> but um, coming back with the wisdom, my goal was to finish my master's before I turned 50. And I did that. And because it made sense along the trajectory to return there and do that work. And I had thought that I would not work with sexual assault and domestic violence and trauma because of my own experience. That was not my goal. But through the process of my training, it really became clear that's where there was. It just, I kept, it kept lining up over and over again. That's mm. even though I didn't want to do that work, that's where the, well, if we could say it like this, the universe was guiding me. It really felt like there were a lot of things that were lining up that, that were just confirming that's what I should do. And so that's where I ended up was working. My first job right out of school was at a sexual assault and domestic violence uh, response center, one of the network of funded centers in Ontario. And, that's, and that was the beginning of my practice as a therapist. And now I'm in private practice. I work with mainly women entrepreneurs supporting their mental health because running your own business is so stressful, anxiety inducing and isolating. And that the trauma awareness when you're working with women is so important because trauma for women is ubiquitous. That's taken me quite a long time to wrap my head around. And, and there's a number, there's so many jumping off points in what you shared in terms of your own progression from one to the other, and then how it comes back around full circle. I'm experiencing a bit of that right now with the, an interest in and how it's going with opening the door on talking about the cult dynamics in the self-help industry Four years ago, when I started for your inner guru, there wasn't much of an interest or an audience for it. Right. And now it's quite different. And I believe that it's because so many of us have been through trauma in the last 18 months. Yes. In terms of trauma of loss of all different kinds. Yeah. And also observing some of the dynamics playing out in society. So people are, are curious and, and that's, that's aligning with my willingness to, uh, to, after 12 years, be willing to look at some of these things because I wasn't open to it. 
in the past? We had assumptions. When I came to my, in the first few sessions with my therapist, the, the trauma therapist who changed everything for me, I can tell the story of what happened to me. I know the facts. I can say, this is what happened when I was sexually assaulted. This was what happened in my relationship. It's not like for some folks, it's it's difficult for them to even put the story together because of the way traumatic memory is stored. I thought that I knew what was what because I could tell the story. But mm-hmm. when my therapist, she she said, there's this weekend coming up that I think you might be interested in. I'm co-facilitating with some people. And she slid the pamphlet across the table to me. And the word trauma was in the title. And I looked at the pamphlet and I looked at her and I said, trauma, me? And I'm sure this is not what she said, but my what I carry is she in, like in a lighthearted kind of way was like, duh, like newsflash. Yes. And even putting the pieces together to name what happened, I think is so powerfully important, but it's also a really big leap because admitting or accepting that's what it meant was a really big step. Do you think that part of that, that's what it really meant piece is that if there's trauma, then there also has to be someone who was a victim or on the receiving end of that trauma? And we don't like to think of ourselves as vulnerable in that way. I found for me, being cast in the role of victim was very challenging as somebody who has always had to be, but also embraced being very independent, very creative, (laughs) very strong. Yeah. And then shit things happen just to yeah. throw a great big umbrella term out there that we're going to use again in a different context in a few minutes. It was such a disconnect from my personal identity that there's no freaking way that I'm a victim here. And so I resisted looking at yeah. that entire side of it. Yeah. I would like to make a distinction between the fact of being victimized and having an identity as a victim. Because as a therapist now, I believe that it's so important to call a thing. It's important to, that's what my friend Nicole Lewis-Kieber says, call a thing. It's important to name what's happening, to acknowledge the truth of what's happening. And the truth of what happened is that I was victimized. It is a fact that I was harmed by others who acted against me with power over me that I could not prevent. I was not in a, I was powerless in that situation to prevent that from happening. That's a fact. And yet, so acknowledging that in that moment, I was powerless. And in those moments, there was powerlessness that I experienced and that that was part of the phenomenon of trauma as I understand it, is to be alone with something and overpowered with something that's overwhelming, either emotionally or in any other way, that these are all true to my experience. And at the same time, how do I think about myself? And for example, in the abusive relationship I was in, my my first marriage was to a man who was abusive, but I identify also just like you do and always have as a strong, powerful, competent woman and a feminist. And even then, when I, in my first marriage, I, I came into that marriage, I was 26, identifying as a feminist and, and an adult and thinking I was knowing what I was doing. And to me in that relationship, fighting back, arguing back, not putting up with his crap, but the fact remained that his behavior did not change. And my standing up to him let me tell myself I wasn't a victim, but it also obscured the nature of what was actually happening. And these are, it's so nuanced to pull these two things apart of like how we define and think of ourselves. Am I a victim? And how we name the reality of what's actually happening. And, and to step into this inquiry is so fraught emotionally because of what, like you say, I don't want to be a victim. I don't want to be a victim. Mm -hmm. So then how do I name what's actually happening? It's very complex to pull apart. 
I had an interesting experience last year, right around this time when the Wondery podcast guru, The Dark Side of Enlightenment came out. And part of that was an interview for a true crime podcast. And in one of the prep calls, I and it was with an FBI, I can't remember all of the terms now, but FBI, a former FBI forensic investigator. Mm-hmm. And then two other women. So there's three hosts to this this podcast. So three on one is a very interesting dynamic. In our prep call, I was adamant about I don't want to be portrayed as a victim because they they were throwing around victim. It's in their daily yeah. vernacular. I learned yes. that through this experience where for me, I was just like, eh, no, no, no. And one of the hosts contacted me afterwards and said, I really, I hope I'm not overstepping. And from my perspective, like I've never experienced anything like you have, <laughs> hardly anyone has, but from what I've seen and from my own experience in an, a situation where there was a, a perpetrator and abuse, that being able to hold the space that yes, you were victimized is integral to the healing process. And she said, you don't have to stay there, but I'm sensing and seeing something that may not be, it feels like it's the right thing to do, but it may not be the right thing to do for your long-term greater good, which was very courageous. It was hard to hear and uh, unsolicited. So she was really taking a risk. She was. And, and then I had to really sit with it later, much later, because in the drama around this release, and although in, in the middle of COVID, it was far less dramatic than it could have been, but that series of events really did shift things for me. Mm-hmm. And, and it didn't stay long. And you've very eloquently differentiated between the victim identity, victim mentality versus being able to see that, oh, harm happened. Yes. And it's okay. And it's a part of getting on the healing journey is acknowledging yeah. the harm. Let's shift a little bit and talk about the context under which we connected because it's related in terms of, I can't remember what the initial exchange on Instagram was. I, I do. Do you? Please remind me. I had posted something about people to unfollow because they were endorsing problematic points of view within the context of the pandemic. And you messaged me for clarification around where I had gotten the information that I had posted. Ah, that's right. Because I wanted to share it and wanted to make sure that it was solid. Yes. And I was following you under your personal account under Laura Tucker. And you were just some Canadian who I thought was posting cool stuff. I didn't even know your story. And it was in that, in the process of the Instagram DMs that you identified yourself to me. And I was like, oh, and I said, oh, you're that Laura Tucker. How cool that you're Canadian. How cool that you're nearby. And it was like, how cool to connect because I think we were both having some of the same concerns and experience. And I really want to bring that into the room here. So we all remember the onset of the pandemic and, and for and not everybody is aware of this people who are peripherally partaking in wellness and personal growth may or may not be aware that a significant portion of the industry i don't think there will be yeah. numbers established on this just yet but a significant portion of people in the personal growth personal transformation wellness and under wellness and holistic labels. So practitioners of every modality yeah, have, and still have gone down the conspiracy theory path. Yes. I believe that even to this day, many of those people don't realize where conspiracy thinking is originating and what the agenda behind that conspiracy theory and conspiracy thinking really is. And so we also connected over you were the person who referred me to the Conspirituality podcast. Oh, really? How fun. Yes. Another yeah. Canadian, another really good Canadian. Yes. Yeah. There's, which is a podcast hosted by three gentlemen. The local one is uh, Matthew Remsky, and they have done uh, 
an amazing job of breaking that shit down and interviewing. And between connecting with people like you and having that input during what was a quite a dark time for me existentially, it brought into question so much about what is it actually that I'm doing here and do I want to continue it? And there's a blended answer to those questions, but I needed that. I needed to know that I wasn't alone in my shock and horror that the very some of the very people who I had looked to for reference around high quality, personal growth, yeah. transformation yeah. and healing yeah. were so quick to jump and then become leaders in the disinformation themselves. It was a very similar dynamic to the one that I had lived through when the leader ultimately failed the group. Yeah. Yeah. It was frightening. It was frightening. I'm a longtime student and practitioner of yoga. I started practicing yoga when I was eight, nine years old, just by coincidence, because I was recovering from scarlet fever and had been in bed for a month. And the local public television network had this little black and white yoga show on. And really, like literally the first times I got out of bed was to do yoga with the woman on the TV show. And the practice is very dear to me. And yet I have watched, and this is another thing I appreciate about Matthew Remsky is his inquiry into guru abuse in the yoga field. And I've watched over the years as so many of the teachers in yoga and meditation have been revealed to be abusers. And as a feminist and a woman who works in the sexual assault, domestic violence field, and who's trained in that and who has experienced it for herself to watch that happen was really distressing. But I think for, because I was an active watcher of that, those waves as they passed through the yoga and meditation community, I was already thinking very critically about yoga and the yoga world and the wellness world associated with it. While it was extremely distressing to me to watch that happen with other spiritual and holistic and even yoga teachers coming into the pandemic, it made a certain kind of sense to me that things would go sideways because there's just something about power without accountability that can go sideways so easily in a culture that values power and authority above most everything. That's one of the things that bears looking into about the self-help industry yes. in terms of how this pursuit of individual happiness, joy, growth, freedom has lent itself to very individualist thinking. Yes. And this is a problem because the, the Western take on the Eastern philosophies divorces them from their context. And so both yoga and meditation have ethical practices that actually come first before the forms of the practice, like the physical forms or the breathing practice or even the sitting practice, that there's an ethical structure and there was a critique of meditation at one point where they were calling it McMindfulness, where they were talking about just the practices yeah. divorced from the context. And I think that looking at those with Western eyes, it becomes warped because, again, it's without the ethical foundation and without any kind of community accountability or any kind of teacher who's teaching you that... It can, it, it, the person gets to do whatever they think. And you and I both know that what we think, that the mind is not always our ally mm -hmm. and that distinguishing thoughts from, I don't even know how to articulate this exactly because it is, it's again, a slippery slope that like our inner autonomy and our inner authority, but then there's the role of the thinking mind in that. And the thinking mind can easily lead us astray if we don't have a practice of a discernment. And so a person who's not accountable just goes with their thoughts and thinks it's divine inspiration. And then it's really more just their own power and in alignment with power and control. And it just becomes it becomes very harmful. And you've actually identified right there why under the umbrella of free your inner guru, I have shifted to start incorporating conversations about indoctrination 
and undue influence. They all influence indoctrination, intuition, inspiration. They all start with I. There's something to that. This is one of the reasons why I insist on reading. If I'm interviewing someone who happens to be launching a book, I insist on reading it cover to cover because after 12 or 13 years of experience in the industry for better and worse, I'm going to filter. (laughs) And I used to say, am I the arbiter of all that? Because, well, yeah, you know what? I'm free your inner guru. I am. I'm not going to put something on that I think is either too superficial or cookie cutter or mass for mass production, even if it would grow the podcast faster. That's just not what this space is. And we have to be, you know, I remember, and, and you would probably recall this too, like we've gone from We've gone from the age of, you know, industrialization through to information. And then around 10, 12 years ago, right around the time that I was getting involved via The Secret and and James Ray, but you started hearing talk about the inspiration economy. Yeah. And I'm starting to make a case in my own mind that we, meaning just the industry at large, have so far overshot inspiration, where it's actually gone so far as to be indoctrination. Yes. Well, I do think that, again, coming back to the analysis of power and control and the context in which this is occurring, which at least in the North American context, which is what you and I have experienced, that this is what monetizing, this is what advancement and enrichment at any cost has corrupted what might have gone a different way. Because if we think about the people, for example, I'm in uh, my yoga training is in the Kripalu tradition. But then after I finished my Kripalu teacher training, I studied in the tradition of Vinda yoga, which is Desikachar and Krishnamacharya. I don't know if you know, but in Kripalu, the guru fell. Um, and even in the tradition of Krishnamacharya, Desikachar, the son, Kaushtab, also fell. There was It was revealed that he was sexually abusing his students the prominence and then the influence and then the enrichment just, I think, really diverted the people from their path. You mentioned could have gone another way. Do you have any insight or ideas as to what another way would have, could have, or or will potentially look like as more people become aware and have their eyes open to some of this success at all costs? impact? Well, I think it's part of the anti-capitalist critique. I don't really have any clear answers because that isn't where I've done a lot of thinking. But I do know, like as an entrepreneur myself, I've had to, and I identify as an anarchist, I have had to think hard about what does it mean to be in business for myself and to differentiate between capitalism versus the marketplace, where the marketplace has existed and I don't know if I would call them a colleague, somebody I know professionally, Kaylin Aaron distinguished this for me between the capitalism and the marketplace. And they said the marketplace has existed for centuries, thousands of years. The marketplace pre-industrial where the woman who made beer, people came to her and brought her chickens in exchange for their beer because she was good at beer and they weren't. They were good at chickens. That that kind of, we are into interdependent in that way and that that isn't capitalism that capitalism is really the um, exploitation of labor for enriching the person who owns the business who the kind of labor that they do they may do some of the intellectual labor but in many cases in terms of capital the work that the capitalist does is They hire people to do the work. They don't work themselves. And that's certainly as a solo practitioner. And even when I had a group practice, that was not, I I was far from a capitalist. And that's as far as I've gotten is distinguishing there's needs for sustainability, or actually I would say better regenerativity, that we need to find ways as humans to support ourselves materially so that we can continue to be generative, to contribute as opposed to sustainability, which is just status quo, like maintaining the way things are. I think that we should be able to thrive, but thriving versus exploiting and benefiting from and how we do those things on a cultural, social level. I know that to me, it seems like that's the downfall 
mm-hmm. of these gurus, but what the answer is, I'm, uh, it's like, I, I think it's widespread social change along with what's the answer to racism, structural racism and systemic misogyny and all those kinds of things. It's because it's inherent in the culture in which we live and that's what has to change. One of the things that it occurs to me to just offer as a red flag in both, if I'm thinking about the sectors that we're in more than one sector each, mm-hmm. but if we're looking at yoga, self-help, creativity, um, therapy, therapy, oh yeah, therapy, we're coming to that real quick. But, but one of the major red flags is what you mentioned. It's a form of you know exploitation yeah. where in, in terms of the exploitation can look like, this is actually one of my pet peeves in hindsight. If this is an actual business, let's say a guru comes to town, right? And it'll yes. be happening before very long where our border will, will reopen. Yeah. Here come the gurus because they can. We're very lenient, uh, especially yeah. from our border to the American guru coming to Canada, a very lucrative market for the gurus as evidenced by the abundance of Canadians in every single documentary about the self-help shit show will come in. Are there volunteers? Because if this is a business holding an event, say at a great big convention center or out at a big venue of some kind, and if this is a business, it's for profit. Yes. And if it's for profit, then it should be run in a profitable way. Yes. And if the entire labor force, the people letting you in at the door, the people helping you to your chairs, the people at the tables, the people who are absolutely 100% responsible for making this large scale event happen, if they are volunteers, even if the payoff is time with the guru or access to the VIP lounge, that's not cash. No, it's not. And I mean, how does that affect their regenerativity, right? If the business model is flawed from the start, because these people, these teachers or guru or spiritual leaders could not be accruing the wealth that they do if they actually paid the people who worked for them all the way down. And I think that would have an inhibiting effect as well. If you have to think about if your ethics apply to how you run your business as much as it applies to the message you're giving your students, it, like it's an integrity issue. And I think that would exercise an inhibiting effect for sure to that accumulation of wealth. But I think if I've been thinking, because in preparation for this, I was watching Seduced. I had watched the other the other one the other documentary about Nexium, the, the Vow, but I was watching Seduced in preparation and I was doing some thinking about what is the difference. Because like you, I have a foot firmly in the self-help, wellness, spiritual arena because it's part of my mental health and my self-care to engage in these practices for myself. My, my master's degree is in counseling and spirituality. This really matters to me, but I'm asking myself, what is the difference What makes the difference between the exploitative and harmful situation and the one that is beneficial? And really, the only answer I could come up with in the week that I've been thinking about this is the intention of the person at the head of it. Which you can never know. You can't. And that's the problem. Yeah, it's a quandary. So this is why we need this is why we need red flags, but maybe you and I need to spend some time together and put something together. I think it would be worth thinking this through some more because again, like we were when we met, we were talking about what, what was striking me about when I watched The Vow, uh, the what, the thing I said to you is it looks a lot to me like what happens in an abusive intimate relationship and it, it got me angry that the general impression of both women in abusive relationships and people who have been um, drawn into high demand groups or cults is that people over here think they're dumb, right? That they think, why doesn't she leave? And, you know, Mm -hmm. that, and I was thinking about the parallels and the, in terms of seduction, When you think of romantic love and following falling in love, isn't the thing you want from the person who might be your beloved, that kind of romance and seduction? Don't you want them to gaze into your eyes and tell you sweet nothings? Don't you want them to be thinking of you and bring you a little treat? 
Don't you want them to be attentive to you and your needs? Of course you do, because that's the definition of a good relationship, like a plant, right? You have to, if you want a plant to grow, you want to make sure that it has the good dirt and it has proper sun and it has nutrition and it has, those are all things you want. And how do you discern what is in the heart of the person giving those things to you? And you can't know except with time and support. And so when I'm working with, when I used to work in the exclusively with domestic violence and people would ask, what do I look for in my next relationship? How do I not get into this? The the one thing, the one answer that I could come up with was time. Go really slowly. And the other thing is, always have your no person, have your naysayer and sit with your discomfort about their nose. Sit long and hard with your discomfort about their nose. But that was the only, as far as the intention is concerned, I think the intention will become clear over time. But I think we're all vulnerable and only time will tell what is actually going on. And a lot, oh, there's a lot there to unpack. I think this is, I think this is why in, when I put this podcast together, actually, I'm just going to backtrack for a second, just for context, in, in case you're listening and wondering about Seduced and The Vow, just in case. They're both documentaries about a, a group called Nexium. And at Nexium is spelled N-X-V-I-M. It's like an acronym, but it's not, or maybe it does stand for something, but it would fall very firmly in the cult category. And the leader of that cult is currently serving 120 years in jail for the abuses perpetrated on the members of his organization. And what makes that pertinent for this exploration is that that it is a cult that 100% grew out of a self-help movement. And I think it's one of the reasons I resisted watching The Vow for months and months, even though person after person kept telling me to watch it or Mm. suggesting that I might like to watch it. Mm. And I was on overload at the time it came out because of Guru coming out. We had been put in a show. The only, the first way I heard of Nexium was being put in a show on uh, the History Channel side by side, much to my horror. But now I'm just like, okay, I'm in, a, I'm in a couple of productions that are always going to be classified cult. So I have to embrace the C word and I have to yeah. been tremendously healing. But there's a, there's a long bit of context for you. And I fear when we bring up these more extreme examples that we let the toxic average <laughs> just kind of coast by because people say, well, it's not like that. There was no no branding, nobody But died. it is like that. It is 100% like that. <laughs> but it is like that. It's 100% like that. But that's the that's one of the really, again, it is so difficult to address the structural, at least in my experience, I, I have found it difficult to address in conversation with people, the structural, the, the, in, the invisible violence that, that occurs on a daily basis, the invisible coercion and control that we experience on a daily basis basis. Part of the reason is that in order to survive, like, for example, as a feminist, misogyny is everywhere. Women experience microaggressions, many times micro in quotation marks, because aggression is aggression, but we experience these microaggressions over and over again. But part of as a feminist to survive, if I felt everything that happened to me, I could not function. So part of functioning in a misogynist world is not paying attention to the pain of it. And it's an an important way of coping. And I would theorize, I'm also Jewish. So there's microaggressions that I experience as I'm white passing, but I, the people who call what's white wouldn't call me white. So there are aggressions that I experience at that level. And I would assert based on that, that probably most people who are experiencing these aggressions, part of how they cope is not to get upset every damn time, because otherwise you can't function. But at the same time, how then do we draw attention to these invisible things that are like, they're the water we swim in if we were fish. Yeah. And all the while, while you're toning that down, you're conditioning yourself to not feel it. And it's it's numbing. And even just, you want to talk about microaggression. When we got on for our prep call for this conversation 
And the first thing that I always ask people if I have even 1% uncertainty is how do I pronounce your name? Right. And, and go for clarity there. I think it's the, the most important thing. And your business name is Shula Consulting and, and people call you Shula. And I asked you, do you want me to call you Shula or Shula Meet? And do you remember what you said to me? Yeah, because it's what I say to everybody. I prefer Shula Meet, but if it's too much for you, you can call me Shula. And even just the fact that it would could be too much for me is to me, that's a microaggression. So I'm like Shula Meet all the way yeah. because yeah, but it's it matters. This, it does matter. And so coming back to what you said, you know, about that it really is everywhere. And that as a therapist in my own personal recovery, I had to understand the difference between what we colloquially call big T and small T trauma because big T trauma, originally trauma was defined in the diagnostic and statistics statistical manual, which is where all the psychiatric diagnoses are cataloged as a one-time event that was life-threatening. Where And so we colloquially now in the field call that big T trauma, car accident, uh, homicide, that kind of thing. But then there's the small T trauma, the things that occur that are over time. That, for example, neglect and abuse in a child's life, there is no one event that occurred. It's a series of small things and domestic violence. I just really hate that term, but intimate partner violence. It's the campaign, the sustained campaign of psychological and emotional and other forms of abuse that traumatize the person who's at the receiving end. And to name these small T traumas and see where they are and to realize that actually, as I said at the very beginning, it's ubiquitous because it is. It's not an exception. It happens everywhere. But part of the work uh, for folks working in the sexual assault and domestic violence field is to point out how male, in particular, in the majority male power and control permeates this culture, just the same way as white supremacy permeates this culture but we don't see it. And if something happens like Mark Lapine, you'll know this as a Canadian, when Mark Lapine, an engineering school in Montreal, a guy came in, his name was Mark Lapine. He separated the men from the women and then he killed the women students. That's an example, an extreme example of the subtle misogyny that occurs on a daily basis. And I would, I assert that if it weren't for the misogyny that is threaded throughout the culture, this kind of acting out behavior would never occur to a person. While it looks to us like extreme, the reason the extreme exists is because the rest of it does. And the rest of it funnels the coercive control that we experience on a regular basis, the abdication of our own autonomy in favor of leaders and members of parliament and prime ministers and presidents and priests and rabbis and other people who are believed to have authority. Like, it's because that's there that we end up with mass murders, that we end up with high demand groups and cults where people are harmed to that great degree. Those things wouldn't exist without first being predicated by the so-called invisible cultural thread. We're starting to hear more and more about coercive control. And, yeah. and I'm glad you took the words out of my next question, because I was going to ask you, is this, you know, is this what coercive control means? And for, I'm almost embarrassed to say, but we watch Coronation Street in this house. Okay. My husband's from Manchester and, and I finally caved in years and years ago. And it's just something we put on pretty regularly. One of the things that I have to say that I do really appreciate and respect about the show is that they pick one social issue after the next. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. they did a, a prolonged exploration of coercive control in oh, one cool. of the marriages. And when I say prolonged, it was as prolonged as a coercive control relationship. It's just occurring to me now that part of the right. reason is that it went on and on, yeah. which doesn't always yeah. make the best television because we all want that resolution. We want the, but it was done so well. It was disturbing and eye-opening yes. about yes. how the subtleties. Yes. It's all about the subtleties. Yes. The analogy I like a lot is boiling a frog. So if you think about boiling a frog, the story goes that if you 
drop the frog into boiling water, he jumps right out. But if you put him in a pot in cold water on the stove and just turn it up a teeny tiny little bit and then wait and then turn it up a teeny tiny little bit more and wait and then a teeny tiny bit more, he's boiled before he even realizes because the difference between the last like 20 degrees and 21 degrees is so minimal that that the frog never notices until it's too late and he's boiled to death. And one of the things that I said about what it was like for me to be in the abusive relationship is, first of all, we're trained as women. I would assert that we are trained as women to um, accommodate and compromise and give over. And so for me in my relationship, I well, it, I was married six months after we met, which was a big mistake. Back to that and, go slow, take time. Right. Yes. And in fact, we were married six months after we met, but our big celebration of our marriage was not, was up for another six months. And in that intervening six months, it became clear to me what was going on. And if we had our formal marriage at the same time as our ceremony, I wouldn't have gone through with it, but it was too late. I had already pledged to to this relationship. Therefore, it made sense to me that when I started having to give parts of myself up, I would say, oh, it's only the tip of my finger. That that won't hurt me very much. Like I'm speaking metaphorically. Uh, After the fact, when I described to people how I ended up where I ended up, at first, it was just the tip of my finger. So I'm not really comfortable with that, but I promise to love and I'm committed. We both were from divorced groups and we family groups. And we said, we don't want that to happen for ourselves. So we already held the standard. I held the standard that I wasn't going to leave because that wasn't how I wanted things to end. And because of that, when it came to be the not just the tip of my finger, but the joint, I, I was like, okay. And, but after enough of those okays, I was like legless and armless, mm-hmm. metaphorically speaking. But I, but it wasn't like right from the beginning, he said, okay, give me your legs and your arms. I would have never said yes to that. But it was just bit by bit, like boiling a frog. And I think it's really great that Coronation Street demonstrated the tedium, the everyday tedium of those little bites that you give up to the individual or the organization that without putting them together, Together and giving them meaning, they're isolated. Oh, it's just this. Oh, it's just that. So it's very powerful that they uh, and important that they showed that. And it's it's reminiscent actually of the process that I've been going through this last year in going back through all of my old journals and Mm. putting together the beginning of a memoir, where hindsight is even imperfect because you forget things. It's not really a hundred percent it's filtered. (laughs) And and so to go back and look at, there were definitely in in my situation, at least the situation that that led to the Sedona Sweat Lodge, there were a number of red flags. It's very difficult to acknowledge that, but it also starts to make a lot of sense when you start connecting the dots and realizing, oh, that person who called me months before it happened to offer some caution as to the role that I was taking in the organization. The people who suddenly weren't going to events anymore, who had been long time, let's call it clients. Like there's, there are signs, but mm-hmm. when you're, and this is what I find very tricky and it is, it, it and I'm, I, I'm grateful I've not been in, as you called it, intimate partner violence, but very similarly, when you're receiving the benefit and the, and the reinforcement, and you probably know as well as I do how euphoric perceived to be positive personal growth experiences, you feel edified, you feel accepted, you feel like you've found your people. And to look at, to maintain that and to also look at the other end of the spectrum if it's going on I don't know I've come to it's to very hard because, you know, it's, it's such easy. a biological yeah oh sorry the yeah zoom it's a... just screwed us <laughs> sorry yeah zoom you is go. a little funny it's attachment and belonging is a biological imperative it's in us to want to belong and to want to find a love 
a beloved, whether, and it doesn't even, it's not even, I'm not talking necessarily sexual. I'm just talking about beloved. When you're a child, it's your parent, you're the beloved parent. Uh, as an adult, it's your beloved friend or your beloved uh, intimate partner. But it, I cannot, for me, it is so visceral. It's important to recognize how visceral that sense, first of all, belonging from a very primal point of view. And we all know that if we don't can't fight, but our organism still has that biological imperative of if I'm not my people, I will be exposed and die, like literally exposed to the elements and without food and I will die. And similarly, attachment, right? That it's a babies that don't have attachment in their lives fail to thrive and die. An exaggerated example of this is what happened in Romania during the Ceausescu regime, where we that it was clear that the children in orphanages were dying from lack of lack of attachment, lack of love. That and this comes into play when we fall in love with someone or we become connected with a group where we feel the love and we feel the belonging in that group. We, we're so driven from inside, uh, such a degree of that is so driven from inside that, it, and then we have our own confirmation bias. Uh, which is an adult learning phenomenon where we will dismiss whatever doesn't fit with our story. And that's Mm -hmm. just a human thing happens when you put those two things together. It's really hard. It's hard. I will speak personally to take my head out of my ass when somebody says, Hey, wait a minute, what's going on? Because my whole organism is in favor of what I'm doing. Yeah, absolutely. And in, taking the, a good chunk of the last year to figure out where I want to go from here. One of the things that, that I've become mm. very focused on is our community dynamics and group dynamics and cult dynamics, but also realizing that a lot of the benefit of anything that I've partaken in when it comes to investing in myself to go into a, a learning or healing group environment much of the benefit is in the group. Yes, and, right. And so really how much of the benefit or advantage or wisdom is coming from that leader and yes. realizing that part of that guru's skill set is leveraging the group dynamic to your favor, managing that energy, however you want to frame it up. So I'm looking at that and it's part and parcel of why I'm looking at a community model around the podcast. Right, yes. Well, the healing power of humanity. Yeah, let's bring people together and bring people uh, into an environment in a pay what you want model so that yes, there's remuneration, there are costs to running that kind of organization. But that it is, I think on the website, I've, I've got like all of the community, none of the cults or none of the tactics. I have no idea how it's going to do, but it's something that I'm playing with thinking like, if it's really about the environment, so how about construct an environment? We live in an age where that's possible. And if there's many people in with acknowledged wisdom and perspective and modalities to offer, then can we create positive things for people around, maybe around the context of the podcast, but maybe not. Maybe we talk about a social justice issue. Maybe we talk about activism. Maybe we talk about, hey, I'm Catholic. And although I knew I was offered a very sanitized version of what my country's history truly was, hey, I'm being hit on, I'm in the face right now and I'm devastated. And what do I do with that? A place to have real life conversation, not therapy, not coaching, conversation. Trusting and trusting, again, the issue of personal autonomy or personal wisdom or personal sovereignty, give yourself leadership over to another, but at the same time, recognizing that we are interdependent and that the collective matters to the same degree that the individual matters. It takes a lot of thought and inquiry and nuance to get where you want to go for creating a safe group experience. Yeah, it's taking a long time. It's in process. Oh, Zoom is messing with us. I almost want to shut off the cameras so that we can get know that we get good audio. I'm happy to do that if you want. Yeah. Yeah, I think we should. And where's mine? There. So uh, I'll just, I'll overlay a, a screenshot for this. Sure, that's bit. fine. One of, yeah, see right away, it's way better. So I hope the recording at Zoom got everything that you were saying there, but maybe you- That's okay. Could you respond to that idea of collective environment 
again, and then I'll just take it into a final question before we wrap. I think in group environments, I, I, I think really it comes, I'm going to pick up on a theme that we mentioned earlier, it comes down to intention. And so we can have someone who leads a group who holds space for a group and is their desire for to hold space for the wisdom in the group or is their desire is their desire to lead the group and i think where the power of the healing power of common humanity comes up is in groups as you say and in the wisdom that the individual wisdom of each person in the group but it takes a lot of skill to create the space where the leader acknowledges, the person who holds the space, who creates the container, acknowledges that there is power just inherent in the position, Mm -hmm. whether they want it or not. And to work with the group, actively decline the role of authority, except as creating a safe container Mm -hmm. and facilitating a non-harmful process. So that then that creates the conditions for the common humanity to be the healing factor and not the leader to be the great healer of all. But it's such a, it's so nuanced. It's so hard to do that kind of group leadership. And I even want to take the healing expectation off of it because who says, right. Who says it has to be healing, right? Like it can be like, we know connection is reinforced. Like we know that the elements are there for healing, but even the fact that's like having to go for your breakthrough. There has to be a breakthrough in order for yeah. something to be deemed successful. I don't buy into that um, yes. philosophy. So l- let me rephrase the soothing power of ah. shared humanity. Yes, that's perfect. How shared humanity can soothe and ease our distress. And with the people I work with, so many of them come to me in very, in great distress. And I I often say 50% of my job is telling people there's nothing wrong with them (laughs) because they're having, in trauma work, we say you're having a normal reaction to abnormal circumstances that Mm. having been through what you went through, this is what we would expect you to be feeling like, and that it's okay to be upset. It's okay to be in distress about whatever happened. And that's like, soothing to the person's stress. That's very soothing and regulating. And then it helps people reconnect with their, their, the prefrontal cortex comes back online and they're, they can reconnect with their, their more whole selves. And so that shared humanity really is very soothing when people are in distress. Listening to you reminded me of the conversation that I had with Yanya Lalich about this. Yeah. And I'm so grateful to have a podcast because when I decided I wanted to build a community. I wanted to talk to an expert. So I <laughs> that's part of why I contacted her is I need to pick her brain and make mm. sure she's the cult expert that was on the last episode. And if you yeah. haven't listened, what it's, oh, I can't so, recommend it strongly enough. It's yeah. Such a good I'm episode. so privileged yeah. to be able to, to engage in that conversation, but it's also part of why we are here because you had a very specific response to a certain part of that episode. And and that's why we're here right now. And so I would love to talk about it. You were really bothered by the experience that I shared about seeking therapy in the aftermath of the Sedona Sweat Lodge and running into what we're going to call a shit therapist. Yeah. This is a dilemma First of all, I said it then and I'll say it again. I'm sorry that you had that experience. I wish for you that you had not had to experience that. I wish for you that the person you had reached out to for help had been helpful because that when you need help and you reach out for help and the help is harmful, that that just makes things worse. Mm-hmm. And it's not what Thanks. I would wish for anyone. And the sad fact, as I see it, is that certification, registration, academic credentials, and licenses don't truly protect people from harm at the hands of a professional. Dentist, doctor, therapist, spiritual teacher, there are a lot of bad ones out there. And I loved what Yanya said in your um, podcast with her, that she has 
a tool in her book for people to use for discernment about whether or not this is the professional for them. And I have for many years, when a client books an appointment with me, my assistant helps with that part. And then I come in with a personal message and send them two checklists. One is a list of rights as a client. And the other one is how to interview your therapist. Because I want as much as possible to empower folks to determine for themselves whether or not I'm the person they want to work with. Because like I am certified up the wazoo and I have a lot of experience and I think I'm a good therapist and I've had lots of feedback from people that I am. And at the same time, there's a question of rightness of fit, but there's also a question of discernment for the person who wants to work with me to, for them to use their spidey senses to check me out. And consumer advocacy, even though I'm not a real fan of that whole concept of consumerism around Mm -hmm. mental health, and yet the idea that originated in the 70s of the empowered consumer, I think is really important. And we need to take this kind of critical eye, this discernment process to any person we ask to help us in our vulnerable moments. Because the truth is, there is a lot of crap out there. Yeah. And this has been very, this piece of the conversation has been quite enlightening for me because when you are going to someone for help, it's already like a diminished or pejorative role. Yes. Yes. Right. You're vulnerable. Yeah. And another word that I've wrangled with over time and now have grown to embrace. Mm -hmm. So this idea that Yanya states very clearly, and it's becoming clear that you've been an advocate for this as well, is that you're in the driver's seat. You can have, or I, as a consumer of therapy, and and let's extend it to self-help, let's extend it to yoga. Like You're in the driver's seat. It's your body, it's your mind, it's your emotional well-being. You are paying, which means you're the boss. And you say when it starts, you say when it stops, and you have every right to interview your candidate therapists or practitioners that you're not wasting time. God knows over the years as a coach, I have done so many discovery calls. And I I do find there's something problematic with that model of the free discovery call too, but that's Mm. for another time when I'm breaking Mm. down coaching and self-help, but, but you have, and that's what free your inner guru stands for, right? Getting connected to your inner wisdom, even when you're feeling compromised or worn out, burnt out, traumatized, that is a part of the healing process and it should be encouraged and not discouraged. Yes. And it's important to come back to the systemic and structural aspects of this. We live in a culture that teaches us hierarchy, power, and authority that teaches us to respect authority, to go along with authority, to trust authority, to, they know they have prominence. So they, it's a meritocracy. If they're prominent, it must be that they are better than I am and that I should defer to them because they know better, even in just this one arena. And and then of course, if we bring women into the equation and how women are socialized as well, it even further complicates being your own advocate. And I think it's just really important when we talk about, yes, be your own advocate. Yes, be your own advocate. At the same time, recognizing how complex and difficult this is in a culture that exerts all sorts of influence toward deferring to power and authority. Yeah. Yeah. It's a tough one and it's ongoing. Yeah. Very much ongoing as a number, a lot of our systems have really been thrown in a wrench into them this last year and a half in particular. And yeah. and I think we're seeing here locally, by locally in Ontario, where we both live, that there we have a long way to go before we have that idolized or idealized healthcare system. There's no wonder that people go outside of what is you know provided for answers. Yeah. Because there's a lot that's lacking. And then when you go outside, just to come full circle around our point of connection, it's a bit of a wild west out there right now. Yeah. So we have to do whatever we can, people who are in position like you, like me, do whatever we can to educate about the systems that we are either a part of, even out of not being able to avoid it. Yes. <laughs> if, if at this point in time, if you're not... If, 
I, I str- I've struggled with this, but the more I go, the more I realize like, if I'm not having a voice and I'm not talking about the things that I have hindsight on, then I am mm. a part of the system. Yeah, That's this, and connecting enough. this again with uh, sexual assault and domestic violence, the naming things for what they are and talking about them empowers others to see so that it's not such a shock when you encounter it you have a context for it. You have an understanding of it. It's not, oh, this, I thought this never happened. That right. we. That it must be me. Something's wrong with me. And um, not talking up serves the status quo. Not speaking out enables the abuse to continue, both in cults and high demand groups and in spiritual groups and in intimate relationships and families. And the more that those of us who who are in a position to speak out, like I'm not, I don't want to say that everybody should because everybody's in a different place. And if you're along your path enough and feel enough in yourself and you're asking yourself the question, advocate in favor of naming your reality and sharing your experience, because otherwise it's like the story of the emperor's new clothes, where at the end, the emperor's naked and everybody's ooing and eyeing. And there's this one kid who's, he's naked, he had no clothes on. And after that, everything all falls down because we have to say what's really happening so that it can stop. Yes. Well, Shulamit, I feel like we could continue on and we're well over time. This has been everything that I hope for and more in terms of a conversation. I'm so grateful for our contact and that you're willing to come on here, but also we obviously have a lot to talk about. (laughs) We should do. So thank you. Thank you so much. Just briefly before um, I pause the recording, where can people find you online? My Instagram handle is at Shula Consulting and that would be the place to start. All the links are in the bio. You'll see some of my writing. You'll get connected to my blog that way. That would be where I would start. Wonderful. And that's where this relationship started. So I'm right on I'm Instagram. Full, yes. Right. That's right. So I'm a soul, full supporter of finding Shulamit on, uh, on Instagram and beyond. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks, Laura. And thank you for being here. I know you've got a ton of choice in the podcast universe. If you found this conversation or other episodes of For Your Inner Guru to be valuable, I have a request. There's three things that help a podcast grow. The first is when you tell other podcast listeners about For Your Inner Guru and spread the word. The second is when you subscribe on your podcast app or at freeyourinnerguru.com. And the third is when you leave a rating and a review. If you'd like to actively support the podcast, please visit freeyourinnerguru.com where you can shop the t-shirts, hoodies, and notebooks, become a supporting patron, and learn more about the leadership community. Until next time, I'm Laura Tucker signing off for Free Your Inner Guru.